Well, it was one year ago, almost to the day, that I stood here to deliver my first sermon as a candidate to Pastor Harrison Hills. And that was an honor, and it has been an honor. And some may not remember the name of that sermon was titled, The Corinthian Call, God's Gospel or Man's Method. And in that message, we had a a number of statistics given that had just been released by the George Barna Group. Many of them were saddening and bewildering, such as 52%, 52% of professing evangelicals in that 2020 survey affirmed that Jesus was a great teacher, but that he was not God. Over half of self-professing evangelicals did not believe that Jesus was God. And of course, the key words there are self-professing. But nevertheless, these are people who in theory darken the door of a church every Sunday and half of them do not believe that Jesus is God. Well, in the interest of consistency, as it has been a year, we have some new data that's worth considering for us this morning. There are a lot of data points, so we'll just take a look at just one. New polling for 2021 now indicates that 62% of professing Christians claim that the Holy Spirit is not an actual living person, but rather a manifestation of God's power, presence, or purity. Meaning 62% do not have a biblical understanding of the person and work of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Now, I would like to think that Harrison Hills does not contribute to that statistic, but at those numbers, we should not put our head in the sand. And when I see numbers like this, my first thought is to consider how we got here, what movements or teachings within the church are causing this, and we'll touch on that in a moment. But saints, there have always been heresies about the Holy Spirit. In fact, if you ask your everyday churchgoer to describe the Holy Spirit, chances are they will unwittingly espouse some form of heresy, whether it's tritheism or partialism, modalism or Macedonianisms. These have all been addressed and debunked through church history. Yet, here's what's interesting about this poll. All the aforementioned heresies, while they're false representations of the Holy Spirit and of Trinitarian theology, they all still had the Holy Spirit as a person. As a person. Our polling today, though, goes for broke. They've moved beyond these heresies with the statistical majority of evangelicals today eliminating the person of the Holy Spirit altogether. But rather, the Holy Spirit is, as they say, merely a manifestation of God's power, presence, or purity. In one statement, 62% of all professing evangelicals just disavowed the doctrine of the Trinity. Why does that matter? Well, if we are worshiping a God that is not three in one, that does not include the person of the Holy Spirit, we're worshiping a different God. And if we are worshiping a different God, that God cannot save. He's powerless to save because he does not exist. Put plainly, if this poll is correct, 62% of professing evangelicals are worshiping a God that does not exist. How does this happen? How do we get here as a nation to espouse this, what I'm going to call super heresy? That's a new phrase I'm coining for our age that we live in now. How does this happen? Well, the short answer is you're looking at it. The pulpit. Yes, congregants are ultimately responsible for what they know and what they profess. On that day before the Lord, they cannot blame their pastor. 
But we also know, as Dr. Steve Lawson often says, that a congregation will never rise higher than their pulpit. The buck stops there. And in many real ways, the pulpit sets the high watermark. It sets the standard. And this hellish statistic of 62% lies at the foot of the pulpit. Martin Luther proclaimed, quote, the preachers have no other office than to preach the clear son Christ. Let them take care that they preach thus or let them be silent. Close quote. We also have the rise of hyper charismatic groups within the U.S. associated with places like Bethel Church or Jesus Culture or the New Apostolic Reformation, which, by the way, is not new. It's not apostolic and it's not a reformation. They've contributed to this false understanding of the Holy Spirit as well. Saints, the third person of the Trinity is not a force that hits you and causes you to roll on the floor. It's not a force that causes you to speak gibberish. He is a person. He is not a created being. He is not a force. The Holy Spirit is not a what. He is a who. He has always existed along with the Father and the Son. He is the eternal. He is the giver of life. It is the ministry and work of the Holy Spirit to write, as R.C. Sproul writes, to come to people who are spiritually dead, who are walking according to the course of this world and according to the prince of the power of the air, fulfilling the lusts of their flesh and of their minds, and to recreate them as he regenerates them. Close quote. What else? Let's learn about this third person, lest we be in this statistic. We're often told that the Holy Spirit is the comforter. Right? Because our translations say that Jesus must go and when He does, He will send the what? The Comforter. That being the Holy Spirit. But that word Comforter does not mean what we take it to mean today. The King James was, King James was the first to use this word, to translate this word Paraclete into Comforter. And they weren't wrong to do that. The problem comes in when we factor in how we in 2021 read that. In our mind, in Lanesville 2021, if I told you that a comforter was coming, you probably would envision someone coming to you after a struggle, right? After a battle to to bind up your wounds and bring solace and peace. To us, a comforter would come after the battle, after the war, to refresh us and to restore the injuries. But that's not the intent here. Back when King James commissioned this translation, our English was much more closer aligned with the Latin roots of our language. And the word for comfort here, coming from the Latin word, come fortis. Come simply means with. But what about fortis? This is where we get our derivative fortitude or fortress from, meaning strength. Strength. Meaning the Holy Spirit was not coming to the disciples as a comforter after the battle to bind up wounds that they had experienced thus far. He was coming comfortis. He was coming with strength. He was coming to bring them strength for the coming battle. Big difference there. Big difference. Now this might seem like academia for you or or theological minutiae, but nothing could be further from the truth when 62% of evangelicals believe the Holy Spirit is a force or a feeling. If we are immersed in the language of who He is, my prayer is we will never fall prey to that statistic. The third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, is our comfortis. He has come to strengthen us for the battle to come, not to lick our wounds. He is our sanctifier as well. 
Among the persons of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit is the principal actor who works for our sanctification, enabling the process by which we are conformed and changed into the image of Christ. That's what sanctification is. Growing in holiness. That's a job and a function of the person of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is also an illuminator of Scripture for us. The Holy Spirit reads along with us, illuminating the text. What does that mean? Well, the great theologian Jonathan Edwards said, quote, the primary effect of the Spirit's work of illumination is to awaken in us a sense of the divine excellence of the things of God. We may be persuaded that Christ is divine and still not grasp the sweetness of that idea. There may not yet be affection for Him in our hearts or souls. And the Spirit awakens in us a sensibility to the excellence of the things of God. Close quote. In other words, He takes us to the revelation of God and shows it to us in such a way that He overcomes our natural hostility or our bias against the truth of God and He shows us the loveliness of it. These are just a few of the things the person of the Holy Spirit does in our life. And there are many more. We pray that we never be included in the statistic we read this morning. If we are to worship Him rightly, we must know Him rightly. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, speaking of a year, almost a year later now, we have begun the seventh chapter of Mark. Well, last week we poured over what was really something of a last report from Mark about Jesus' ministry in and amongst the crowds of Galilee. And as Jesus walked out on water to the disciples, He got into the boat with them and they came to the land at Gennesaret. And from there they walked to Capernaum. All along the way, healing and ministering to all indiscriminately. And we watched as Jesus lavished His healing upon this crowd out of nothing but sheer love. Out of common grace that even today He pours upon all. Saints, can we be reminded what common grace is? The lost, those who do not know Christ, they are able to enjoy a sunset. They're able to enjoy good food. They can marvel at the Grand Canyon. They can experience the love of family. All of these things are from God that He allows even the lost to experience. That's what common grace is. Jesus did the same for the feeding of the 25,000 back in Bethsaida Julius, didn't He? Common grace. He fed them all out of love and compassion. For those of you who have been following our series from the beginning, we have grown quite fond of the crowd, haven't we? We've learned so much from them. We have at many points identified with them. I know that I have. Besides Jesus, the crowds as an entity has somewhat dominated the narrative up to this point. But last week really was, was something of a final act for the crowds of Galilee. And specifically Capernaum, that Jesus had spent so much time. With the final act comes a very sobering reminder. This from the great J.C. Ryle. He writes, quote, We forget that the Capernaites heard the most faultless preaching and saw it confirmed by the most surprising miracles and yet remained dead in their trespasses and sins. We need reminding that the same gospel, which is the savor of life to some, is the savor of death to others. And that the same fire, which softens the wax, will also harden the clay. Nothing, in fact, seems to harden man's heart so much 
as to hear the gospel regularly and deliberately prefer the service of sin in the world. Never was there a people so highly favored as the people of Capernaum. And never was there a people who appear to have become so hard. Let us beware of walking in their steps. Close quote. So with that reminder, we bid a farewell to the thronging masses as Jesus turns his attention more toward pouring into his disciples for the long road ahead as we begin to put Galilee in the rearview mirror soon on our long road to Calvary. But today we give a hearty welcome back to some old friends that we have not seen in a while. It is time to welcome back the Pharisees. I've really missed these guys. I really have. These are the guys that you just love to loathe. But it's a special loathing. It's a loathing that stings for us because we all tend to see a little bit of ourselves in these different attitudes and approaches of these religious elites. More than any other actor, more than the Romans, the religious elite have been the attack vessel upon the Son of God. Satan does not oppose religion. He co-ops it. He joins it. Contrary to popular belief, Satan would far prefer to occupy a church pew than a place overflowing with sin. The heart of a Pharisee is fertile soil for the demonic to flourish. We're all familiar with the Pharisees by the, at this point. If you're interested in doing more of an introductory deep dive on the scribes and the Pharisees, our previously recorded sermons have all of that available. But we're going to see today not only a look back into the foul innards of apostate religiosity, but it is indeed a foretaste. It's a foretaste of what awaits our Savior in the grand story of redemption as it winds its way toward Jerusalem. These Pharisees are the ones who will be waiting for Jesus there. These are the ones who will level false accusations. They will be the fuel behind the crowds calling for Jesus' crucifixion. And Jesus saved his harshest rebukes, not for the prostitutes, not for the tax collectors, but for those who knew nothing of the heart of God, and yet they claimed to speak for him. They presided over a vain worship, a worship that had nothing to do with God and everything to do with themselves, everything to do with bowing down to their system, putting a yoke of bondage upon the people. And we'll be splitting this encounter into two parts, beginning first with the challenge today. The challenge brought by the Pharisees in verses 1-5. through five. And finally, next week, we will look at Jesus' incredible response to these accusations in verses 6-13. through 13. So with that, let's begin with our first part, verses 1-5. through five. Mark 7, 1-5. through five. And the Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around Him when they had come from Jerusalem and had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with defiled hands, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash themselves. And there are many other things which they've received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, 
but eat their bread with defiled hands. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You abundantly for this text today. Lord, these are hard texts to look into because they are a mirror for us. Lord, we ask that the Holy Spirit be as a buttress to us, that it stand behind us and hold us up, that we might look into that mirror, that it might be chipped away in us, that we might daily become transformed into the image of Your Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I hope our expository ears are all tuned up because we're diving right into our text this morning. So much to cover. Verse 1. Verse 1. And the Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him when they had come from Jerusalem. (coughs) Excuse me. Well, first thing we notice in this verse are not just the presence of the scribes and the Pharisees, but more notably, Mark feels the need to tell us where they had come from. Now that gets important. Now, we've covered this in earlier messages, but let's remind ourselves just what these fancy pants religious elite from Jerusalem are doing down in this backward Gentile mixed town of Capernaum, staining their garments to be around such heathens. What are they doing there? Well, a bit of an extensive review here is in order because it helps to frame what we are going to see the Pharisees doing and saying. Why are the Pharisees here to begin with? What brought them here? Well, some of our A students in here may remember our teaching on the principle of the Messianic miracles. If you want a full treatment of that, see our sermon on Mark 3, 22-30. But a brief review, there were three miracles that were considered to be Messianic miracles in the Jewish tradition. Three miracles that only the Messiah, when He came, would be able to perform. When or if any of these three miracles were done, it would trigger an immediate, prepackaged response from the Pharisees, whose job it was to go and investigate these claims. And the first Messianic miracle was the healing of a leper. Now, Dr. Arnold Frauchenbaum, he's a Messianic Jewish scholar, he writes about this. He says, quote, from the time the Mosaic law was completed, there was no record of any Jew who had been healed of leprosy. While Miriam was healed of leprosy, this was before the completion of the law. Naaman was healed of leprosy, but he was a Syrian Gentile, not a Jew. From the time of the Mosaic, from the time the Mosaic law was completed, there was never a case of any Jew being healed of leprosy. Close quote. There was no cure for leprosy. None. So why in Leviticus 13 and 14 do we see a lengthy, detailed, priestly Levitical process for someone to be made ceremonially clean after being cured of leprosy? There was no cure. So why have this? The priest never had cause to use this. This was a messianic miracle. There had never been an instance of a leper being healed. So it was widely taught in doctrine and in dogma that the healing of a leper could only be done by Messiah. Saints, what did Jesus do in Mark 1 straight out of the gate? He healed a leper. He healed a leper. And when He does, what does He tell the leper to do in Mark 1.44? I'll read it for you. See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. A testimony to who? To the priests. To the religious elite. Messiah is here. 
a leper has been cleansed. This would have sent shockwaves through the temple in Jerusalem. Someone has performed a messianic miracle. Dr. Frockenbaum, he writes again, quote, because they taught that the healing of a leper was a messianic miracle, anyone healing a leper would, by that very act, claim to be the Messiah himself. Jesus deliberately sent this cleansed leper to the priesthood in order to get the leaders to start investigating his messianic claims and to come to a decision regarding those messianic claims. Close quote. So for the next week, the Pharisees would intensively investigate the claims and they would uncover a few findings. First, this man really was a leper. Secondly, this man was perfectly healed of the disease. And finally, it was Jesus of Nazareth who did it. If you remember in Luke 5, what do we see? We saw the Pharisees and the scribes descending on Capernaum like locusts. Well, according to Sanhedrin law, if there was any kind of messianic movement, the Sanhedrin had to investigate the situation in two stages. And the first was called the stage of observation. A delegation was formed to investigate only by way of observation. They had to observe what was being said, what was being done, what was being taught. They were not permitted to ask any questions or raise any objections at this point. And so they did that. Who was there for the healing of the lame man let down through the roof? Who was sitting in the front row? The Pharisees. But were they speaking? Were they challenging Jesus? No. This was the observation stage. So what does Scripture say? It says they reasoned within themselves when Jesus forgave his sins. So after a period of observation, they were to return to Jerusalem, report to the Sanhedrin, and give a verdict. Was the movement significant or was it not? If the movement was declared to be significant, then there would be the second stage, the stage of interrogation. Now they would interrogate the individual or any members that were involved with this movement. Well, seeing as Jesus made this lame man pick up his mat, and walk in front of them and proclaim to forgive his sins, I would say that's significant. And so they descend back upon Capernaum for the investigation phase. And what happens? Jesus performs the second of three messianic miracles. That of casting out a mute and dumb demon. Well, what makes that messianic? Well, those who cast out demons in this day, they used a system by which they would ask the demons their name. And on that basis, with that knowledge, they would be able to proceed under Judaism with the, ex with the exorcism. But if that person couldn't speak, if they couldn't tell you their name, they'd be powerless to cast it out. So what does Jesus do? Matthew 12, 22. When a demon-oppressed man, oh, what does Matthew tell us, who was blind and mute, was brought to him and he healed him. Earthquake. Messianic miracle number two. Things would be burning up in the Pharisee camp at this point. Two out of three. That's all hands on deck. All hands on deck. So guess what Jesus does? Messianic miracle number three. Healing a man. And not just any man, but a man who was born blind. Very important. Born blind. You remember this man? They called his parents into the synagogue and everything, didn't they? This got them really worked up. Now, I don't have time to get into why the born blind was such a miracle to them, but suffice to say it basically had to do with 
faulty theology about being cursed in the womb. But did you ever wonder, out of all the miracles that Jesus performed, why this one caused such a stir? Right? Calling in the man. Calling in his parents. Cursing and yelling at them. Accusing them of being liars. And now you know why. This was Messianic miracle number three. And saints, as a side note, as you may recall in this previous message, this is what made the sin of the Pharisees saying that Jesus was casting out Satan by the power of Satan so unforgivable. That's why this was the unforgivable sin. Because of what they had witnessed by their own theology and teaching all three messianic miracles and said this is of the devil. They're without excuse. They're utterly without excuse. So that's our lengthy introduction, but we need to be inside the heads of these Pharisees as we're reading the accusation that's forthcoming. It's going to help you understand and appreciate this scene so much more. What do the Pharisees see and do here? Back to our text now. Verses 2 and 3. I'll read them as one. And had seen that some of their, some of his disciples were eating their bread with defiled hands. That is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the tradition of the elders. Well, let's walk through what we see here. First part, they had seen some of his disciples. Well, what were they doing watching the disciples? Now you know. From our intro, what they were doing, watching the disciples. They were in the interrogation phase, which means they followed them everywhere. Jesus and the disciples at this point could not say boo without the Pharisees knowing about it. They couldn't buy a fish in the marketplace without them watching the coins. And they were eating bread, oh, the horror of it all, with what? Defiled hands that is unwashed. Defiled hands. Well, defiled according to whom? According to God? According to Scripture? Of course not. This is nothing but a sacrament in vain worship. Remember with me, saints, a phrase you often hear from this pulpit. And I ask that it stay in the forefront of your minds, not just for this message, but in your life, in your rising up and your laying down, as we consider our ways, as we consider the ways of those around us, as we seek to process through a worldview. Remember this, the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. And here it is just so. The disciples are being accused. They aren't washing their hands properly. And saints, when we talk about washing properly, there was a whole process to washing your hands in Jewish households. Phase one, hands down, fingers down. The other person would pour the water over your hands and drain over the wrist. Phase two, fingers up. Same thing. Clean under the fingernails. Wash down the wrist. Third phase, right fist in hand. Fourth phase, left fist in hand. And that was just for mealtime. If you actually went out into the marketplace where you might have touched someone that was defiled, someone who was unclean, even someone from another sect of Judaism that you didn't agree with, the process of cleaning was even more elaborate. Some of you may remember our previous messages where we detailed just a sample of some of the laws of the Sabbath, like not being able to move a chair in your house because it would make a rut in the dirt and that would constitute plowing. Now this sounds almost amusing, but this truth is wicked. This is a yoke of bondage that infuriated Jesus more than any other he encountered. 
And they have all manner of washings, don't they, these Pharisees? Washing here and washing there. And don't even try to get near synagogue or the temple in Jerusalem. Let me tell you about the washing. Why? Because in the heart, they're trying to purify and they're trying to wash away sin that only Messiah could wash away. The cleaning, the cleaning of hands, it's a fake and a fraud. This washing of the hands as an accusation against the disciples is an imposter. This is vain worship. It's a worthless substitute for the real thing. It's worthless. And that real thing is standing right in front of them as they're accusing the disciples. Had they asked, he could have actually washed them. He would go to wash them white as snow. Well, pastor, what's wrong with washing your hands? It is mealtime after all. Here's why it's wrong. And why Jesus is going to tell them it's wrong next week. Because the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. Right God, wrong heart. Right God, wrong heart. What made these Pharisees be of their father the devil, as Jesus called them? What made them whitewashed tombs and broods of vipers as our Savior rebuked? Saying, woe, woe unto you. Well, ultimately, it was because they were hypocrites and they were idolaters. In fact, Jesus blasts this brood with seven woes. Woe to them, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders. And they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do, everything that they do is for people to see. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. You hypocrites, you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe again. You zealously convert people to your religion and promptly turn them into twice the child of hell that you are. Well, I can't imagine how many churches Jesus would be invited into these days. Meaning they indoctrinate them into a a system that turns people into religious animals. Not to be lovers of truth and of mercy and of grace, but of laws and of rules and men of stone to crash against, to suck all of the life and the joy out. When the rightful laws that were laid down in Scripture were there to preserve and to foster that very life and that very joy. Woe to them, for they are blind leaders, blind fools, They miss the entire heartbeat of God. Woe again to them. You sit there diligently counting out your leaves of mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Woe to you, whitewashed tombs again. You look so good on the outside, but your inside is full of greed and pride and self-righteousness. Your external religious acts are filth because of the heart they came out of. Woe to you. Inside you are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. And woe to you, Pharisees. You are just like your fathers before you. Your fathers all persecuted the prophets who came before, and now in shame you build monuments to them, which is ironic because you killed them. It was the same heart that killed them, that persecuted them and that ran them out. 
And in fact, Jesus knows looking at these men right now in our text that it will be this very self-righteousness, this very pride, this very religiosity that was going to cry out for his death in less than a year's time. This is vain worship. Right God, wrong heart. Back to our text, verse 4. Verse 4. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. How exactly did we get here? How has Israel arrived at a place at what is effectively an apostate religion? I mean, look back at verse 3 in our text. How many of the Jews in verse 3 are doing this? It says, all the Jews. This was the normal operation. The Pharisees weren't the oddballs. Jesus and His disciples were the oddballs. How have we gone from two stone tablets on Mount Sinai to how we're going to wash a copper pot. And in fact, there are 30, saints count them, 30 chapters in the Mishnah about how to clean your pots. Like a lot of things in life, this walk toward legalistic insanity, it began with good intention. God had given the Israelites the law, and they knew that we must keep the law. So the religious leaders said, right, God's law is so important. We don't want our people to get even close to violating it. So we're going to set up some boundaries that are not to be crossed. We want to keep our people safe. We want to keep them holy and set apart. So what started out with noble intention turned out and turned into years upon years of new rules and new rituals. Each major rabbi needing to make their mark on history. All in the name of keeping God's law. But in the lair upon layer upon layer of protection from breaking God's law, they lost sight of it altogether. They lost sight of it altogether. And now we have all these collections together from all different sources. As we learn, this is called the Mishnah. But even that was such insanity to interpret. So guess what? They wrote commentaries on how to understand the Mishnah. This was called the Gemara. And actually, if we put those two together, the Mishnah and the Gemara, this is where you get the Talmud from. You've probably heard that name. It's where we get the Talmud from. The intention was good. Keep our people far away from the danger of breaking God's law. And that's a good thing. An internet filter on your computer. That's a good thing. Keep you safe from violating God's law. But why do we do it? Why do we take precautions in our life to keep us from sin? We do it because we love our Savior. And we don't want any sin to come between us. The motive of it is love. The motive of it is a desire to please the Lord. To bring glory to His name. To preserve the peace and the bond of fellowship. You don't want to bring hurt to someone you love. You love your Savior. You don't want anything to come between you and Him. And that was the intent of the law at Sinai. But this is a perversion of that law. When you go outside of the words of God, when you stray outside of Scripture, tragedy awaits. And the accusation against Jesus and the disciples was not that they were breaking the law, was it? What does the final verse in our text say? Verse 5. Verse 5. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked Him, 
Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with defiled hands? You're not breaking the law. You're breaking the tradition of the elders. Well, saints, let me read from you for you a few brief quotes from this Talmud. From the tradition of the elders written at this time that they're saying Jesus is breaking. This is a direct quote from the Jerusalem Talmud. Quote, the words of the scribes are more lovely than the words of the law. It is a greater crime to transgress the words of the school of Rabbi Hillel than the words of the scripture. My son, attend to the words of the scribes more than the words of the law. That's how we get here. Starting to get a picture of what's going on here? Why this evokes such anger out of Jesus? They're accusing him of not following the tradition of the elders. I just read you from the tradition of the elders. Saints, there are many reasons why we preach sola scriptura at Harrison Hills. There are many reasons that we preach and we preach the sufficiency of Scripture from this pulpit. And this is one of many of those reasons. What happens when you elevate the words of man over the words of God? A falling away is guaranteed. And you are going to heap burdens on people that God does not intend. What happens ten times out of ten when a pseudo-Christian cult develops or a heretical movement they immediately start gravitating to certain works, don't they? Guaranteed. Here's your burden. Put it on. I walk to this pulpit every Sunday, saints, with handcuffs on. I cannot go outside of the text. I cannot. Look what happens when you do. You get apostasy. You get Pharisees. A religious system that is devoid of love and is removed from the only place of authority. The very instant we step outside of this text, we've left the realm of safety. Everybody wants a safe space nowadays, right? Well, here's your safe space. Recall the quote from Martin Luther we opened with. The preachers have no other office than to preach the clear Son, Christ. Let them take care that they preach thus, or let them be silent. No Mishnas, no Talmuds, no words of men, not even commentaries. Just give me the Scripture. A worship based on anything else is a vain worship. Even if it's pointed toward the right God, it will have the wrong heart. And that's really the subject of this entire text, isn't it? The truth in this text, isn't it? The heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. Only in God's life-giving Word, in Scripture alone is fullness of relationship. Only in Christ and the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit is an internal love and affection grown that then flows out into external good works and service. We saw today that vain worship, vain religion, the traditions of men that can lead a group of men to come all the way from Jerusalem to stand to behold the King of Kings. To behold the Lord of glory, the rose of Sharon, and all they could see were unwashed hands. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a 
difficult mirror for us to look into. Lord, we know that Your Word says that Your law is a mirror for us to look into. Lord, we pray that we not turn away from this mirror and walk away forgetting what we have just seen and forgetting what we have just learned. Holy Spirit, we ask that You would wield this Word. We ask that You would cause the arrow to hit its mark in each one of our hearts, including this preacher. Heavenly Father, we ask that You would abide with us this week. We ask that we would go forth in the joy of the Lord, abounding in good works, abounding in service because of our love for a Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.